How many of you have even just a moderate interest or fascination with the royal family? Right, like, like show of hands, when you're, when you're hearing news reports about William and Harry and Kate and Meghan and all those folks, you're like, okay, you're, you're somewhat interested in it. it. I think it's pretty well documented that Americans have a certain fascination with the royal family. Uh, I know we do in our home. It was uh, like many of you probably, Jennifer and I a couple of months ago, sat down and we watched the interview with uh, Harry and Meghan and Oprah as they talked about the scandal of them leaving the royal family. Didn't even know you could leave the royal family, but apparently you can. And so we, we sat down and we watched it. We were two of 17 million Americans that watched this interview with Oprah. One of the latest indicators of this fascination that Americans have with the royal family. Uh, there are several other uh, evidences to that fascination. Not only did 17 million people watch this interview, but back in 2018 when Harry and Meghan were married, 29 million Americans tuned in to watch their wedding. And in 2011, when William and Kate got married, there were 23 million Americans that watched, and that was part of a global audience that reached 2 billion people to watch their wedding. How many people came to your wedding? All right, uh, there is a certain fascination with the royal family. And we were talking about this this past week, and I was reminded that the heart of that fascination in our home really does kind of start with Jennifer because she confided in me, or I already knew this, but reminded me that growing up, she had a pretty strong crush on Prince William. And to the point that she was convinced they were gonna meet and fall in love and get married. Like that was destined in her future. And she even told me that on one of their family trips, I guess when she was in high school, uh, to Germany, Germany, not England, uh, but to Germany, she was looking all over for him because, you know, it's Europe. I guess it's still closer than America. And she was like, we're going to meet, and this is going to be how it ends. And as she was telling me this story, I remember thinking, I wonder what that interaction would have looked like. Like, if you just happen across a member of the royal family, what would you say? How would you approach that? You guys ever given that some consideration? Should you cross paths with someone of royalty? Well, there are a lot of lessons to be learned because many people have experienced that very thing and have made certain mistakes that I would encourage you not to repeat. In fact, one of the more recent examples comes from 2017. Uh, the general governor of Canada, David Johnson, made a terrible mistake. And we even have a picture documenting this mistake. Can you, can you tell what he did that was so egregious that sent the media in Britain just a frenzy? He touched her elbow. That picture right there. Everybody was like, I can't believe he would do this. As he tried to explain later, I was just trying to help her down the stairs, you know, trying to keep her steady. But doesn't he know you're not supposed to touch the queen? These are several examples that we've seen even in our own country when American royalty engaged with British royalty. You're all sitting there going, what American royalty do we have? King James, right? LeBron James uh, had uh, William and Kate attending one of their games in this picture sent everybody a frenzy in the UK again because he put his arm around her. You're not supposed to touch a royal. And so the conversation went on. Haven't the Americans learned? Didn't they even learn when Michelle Obama made the same mistake in 2009 and she touched the queen? You're not supposed to do this. Probably the greatest story that I found when researching this this past week actually came from 1992 and the Australian Prime Minister made the same mistake when the Queen visited Australia. He too put his arm around the Queen when making introductions, and this gesture earned him the nickname the Lizard of Oz in Britain, right? So, here's the point. There are certain things you should not do when meeting a member of the royal family. In fact, 
on their website, they have a landing page that gives you some advice should you ever happen to engage a member of the royal family. Let me read it to you. It says, the basic instruction is that there are no obligatory codes of behavior, right? So that's the, that's the initial statement. You, there's nothing obligatory. You're not a, obligated to do any certain code of behavior, right? This allows you to be whoever you're supposed to be. And then that sentence concludes with what I would argue is pretty passive-aggressive. There are no obligatory codes of behavior, but many people, many people wish to observe the traditional forms. And so what are those traditional forms? Well, they don't say, but Time Magazine said it pretty succinctly when documenting one of these episodes when they wrote, don't touch or speak to a royal unless you are touched or spoken to first. So there's your rule of thumb. Should you ever happen to encounter somebody of the royal family, you're welcome. I'm giving you free piece of advice on how to navigate that relationship. Do not touch or speak to a royal unless a touch or spoken to first. Now here's what's interesting about that. What that does and what we've seen with those sorts of incidences is that essentially it accentuates the us and them mentality, right? It accentuates this incredible gap between that which is royal and those who are common. Right? When we encounter somebody of royalty, it reminds us of who we are not. Pretty interesting, isn't it? And that's the mindset that so many of us have. Those are the expected forms and traditions of how we would engage with earthly royalty. If that's true with how we would engage with earthly royalty, how then should we approach heavenly royalty? If that's how we approach the Queen of England, how should you approach the King of Kings? That's really the question that we'll be able to answer this morning as we conclude this series. But part of what I hope it helps us see is that the major difference is that it doesn't allow us when we approach the King of Kings to once again be forced with who we aren't, but we'll begin to discover who we are in Christ. And through that grace and through those blessings, through his goodness, it will once again result in praise. That's that's the nature of our conversation today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation 3, and let's dig into the details of some of those conversations. Now, we are having the opportunity to, again this morning, conclude our series through these letters to the churches of Revelation. We've been here several months, and uh, today's our last day to discuss it. Next week, we'll start talking about the parables of Jesus, and very much looking forward to that series. Now, before we read these final two verses and look at this final promise to those who are victorious, let me just do a quick overview, quick recap of some of the things that we've seen along the way over the last several months, some of the things that we tried to emphasize. Let's start with Ephesus. When we first ventured to Ephesus, Ephesus was this call to once again to return to the heights from which they had fallen. They had forsaken their first love. And as we documented that and talked through that as a church, we said the main thing that was going on in Ephesus was it wasn't that Jesus was unimportant, it was just that he wasn't the most important. And that made them susceptible to drift. And that really kind of set the tone for the series, this need to establish Jesus as the most important thing in your life. Smyrna talked about what it means to have that importance attached to Jesus in the seasons of afflictions. Pergamum talks about holding on to the teachings of Jesus rather than to some of these other misleading teachings that were developing in that particular time. Thyatira called into question the congregation that was following some of those teachings that were leading to sexual immorality and idolatry. Sardis was a call to once again wake up and strengthen what remains. That theme of strength carried over into the conversation with the church in Philadelphia. 
when we talked about finding strength even in the midst of weakness, as Jesus said, though your strength is small, though your strength is limited, you can hold on to my name. And then last week, with our conversation of Laodicea, we talked about the value of no longer being lukewarm but being hot or cold, to understand how you were made, who you were made to be, and that you were made not for a task or a responsibility, but were made for relationship in Jesus. We've talked about different promises that are offered to those who are victorious, who listen to this call to, to overcome, that those who are able to follow through through that, they're gonna receive the right to eat from the tree of life, they will not be hurt by the second death. They will receive the hidden manna and a white stone in reference to this great banquet and wedding feast to receive authority over the nations. The overcomers will not be removed from the book of life. Those who are victorious will have the name of God written on them in the name of the new Jerusalem. One more promise that we'll get to look at today. But as we think about all those different messages and all those different churches that we've discussed, certain themes have developed along the way. One of the themes that we've really accentuated is this call towards repentance, right? This, this call to understand the rebuke and the correction that Jesus has extended to the church, right? One of the things that we need to recognize is that there are things we need to overcome. There are things that we need to turn from. These were challenging words to the churches. And part of what we see is that it is impossible to follow Jesus without receiving a word of rebuke, without receiving a word of correction. But what is so captivating about that rebuke and what's so captivating about that correction is that it is rooted in love, right? It was a love that led to that call towards rebuke and repentance. And so we must embrace those moments when we ourselves need to recognize, yes, I need to change. I need to correct. I need to repent. And that repentance is rooted in the love of Jesus. Now, another theme that emerged that was coinciding with that was this theme of loyalty, of enduring, right? To have Jesus as the most important thing, to endure, to persevere, all these different challenges, all these different temptations, all these different heresies, cling to the name of Christ above all else. And so it was a call towards that loyalty, towards that perseverance and that enduring. And so when we see these themes, that's, that's really what I hope you walk away with when you think about this series, right? That, that there are gonna be moments where Jesus calls you towards repentance and he calls you into correction, and we should receive those because it is offered to us in love. And that also, no matter what you face in this life, endure, persevere, continue to make Jesus the most important. Those are words for us both individually as well as for us collectively. And the more we can do that, the more that we'll be able to truly live into some of these teachings. Now, all of these different themes and all these different lessons continue to reiterate the arc for the whole year, which is what? Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of faith, so let him shape you. Fix your eyes on him so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. We will be able to endure all circumstances and situations. That's really what we've been discussing. And so I look forward to bringing it to a conclusion. Uh, and there's one final image, I guess you could say, one final message that to me will tie it all together. And that will come with this final promise in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Now, one of the things that I want to say as we continue to think about this final image and this final picture is, again, that when we go through life and we encounter those moments of trial and we hear those words that are calling us towards repentance or we hear that, that reminder to be loyal and endure in hard times, there are going to inevitably be those moments where you begin to question, is it really worth it all? Like, am I actually going to be able to hold on because this has gotten so 
difficult. This is, this is too challenging, or I don't want to surrender this, or I don't want to surrender that, surrender that. And so we'll have that inevitable question in the back of our minds. Can I keep going? Is it really worth it? And that, to me, will be the answer that we seek to discover today. So let's follow along in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, and be reminded of this final promise to those who are victorious. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me say it again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So once again, we return to the image of the throne room, really a place that we've never left through this series, but probably only really directly addressed once so far. And we talked about it in greater detail when we talked about the second death and the inevitability of judgment, that judgment will take place before the throne room of God and the throne of Christ. But today we get a more complete picture of what also transpires before the throne of Christ. And in order for us to really Uh, I think, paint that picture effectively. I want to give some context to just the whole understanding of throne and the imagery that throne, the throne room took place in the scriptures in particular. So it comes from the Greek word thronos, which the whole concept of a throne in general came to the Greeks from the ancient Near East. It it is a concept that is familiar with so many different cultures. Uh, It's almost universal, this idea of the seat of authority and power for the one who rules and reigns. So it's a common image. But I want you to think through how it's used in the scriptures, right? Especially when you start with the Old Testament, there are probably two trains of thought that you could probably pinpoint when you look at Old Testament scriptures. On one hand, the imagery of throne is used to accentuate God's glory. It's used to accentuate his his majesty, his splendor. A lot of times you see passages that talk about heaven being God's throne and the earth, his footstool. So we have this understanding of the throne of God in the way that accentuates who he is and his character. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 47, verse 8 says, God reigns over the nations and God is seated on his holy throne. So it accentuates his holiness. Psalm 93, 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago and you are from all eternity. Right, so you have this imagery that accentuates the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the eternal nature of God. But similarly, in the Old Testament, you also have imagery or discussions that center around the throne that really help color and get, bring into light <clears throat> the nature of the Davidic kingdom, right? specifically the throne of David. So as the people of Israel develop into a kingdom and they are actually given various kings, there becomes this fixation on the throne of David and the way that God speaks about the importance of the throne of David. Look at 2 Samuel 7. This is a discussion where David has said, I really want to build a temple for you. I want to be able to build a place that is reserved for your name. And God says, well, that's not really for you. It's going to be the one that comes after you. And he's having that conversation with David. Listen to some of the things that he says in the midst of it. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging inflicted by human hands. 
But my love will be never taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So when you start encountering the the story of David, you see this, this notion that God intends to establish the throne of David everlasting, to endure forever. And so all of a sudden that begins to weave itself into the words of the prophets, right? This anticipation that the Davidic kingdom will endure forever. So perhaps one of the greatest prophecies that's really well known comes from Isaiah 9 and it accentuates this very point. Isaiah 9 says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the imagery of a throne captures not just the glory of God and the majesty of God, but begins to speak to this promise that was extended to David and becomes this permanent seat for the Messiah, for this Christ figure. And so people, as we have documented throughout so many of our conversations, begin to long for and look for that moment where David's throne would be firmly established forever, looking for that Christ figure. And so fast forward to the New Testament and enter Jesus. And this becomes a huge part of what Jesus does. He infuses those two ideas, the glory of God, the splendor of God, with this promise of this Christ figure who's going to sit on David's throne. Look at what the angel even says in Luke chapter one. It says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is it, this child. This Jesus is the one who's going to sit on this throne that you have heard reference time and time again. And so then as Jesus' ministry unfolds, he's aware of this. He infuses the glory of this throne and the glory that is associated with God and God's throne. And he begins to paint pictures for those who follow him. This is what will take place when I sit upon this throne. Matthew 25 documents it well. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So you see this undeniable sense, yes, that he will sit upon this throne of glory, but all the nations will be gathered in and separated. Right, there's that notion of judgment that notion of determining who will find life and who will find death. So it's a significant reference. It's a significant part of understanding Jesus and his ministry and the role that God has in store for him, fulfilling this imagery that has constantly been fixated upon the throne. So so my question is, is that when you think about that, you think about that context, how does it hit you? Like, how are we supposed to approach such a king? How do you approach Jesus? Right, a lot of times we hear scriptures like this and I think our minds just try to grasp it, we try to picture it. How do you actually approach a king who sits on such a throne where the nations themselves will be gathered in, the one who sits upon this, this promised throne of this Davidic kingdom? How do you approach him? I think a lot of times we approach him with trepidation. 
right? Concern, maybe, maybe we're hesitant because we're fearful that he's gonna find certain things out about us that we're not perfect. Maybe we, we come before him with shame, trying to conceal our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own mistakes. Sometimes we come before him with a certain level of arrogance and hubris, right? Thinking that we deserve to be in his presence. How, how do you approach this throne? Well, I think what's so interesting and what makes this promise so incredible when we look at Revelation chapter 3 is to see what takes place when we finally enter into that throne room. Yes, judgment will take place, but to those who believe, those who follow, what happens? Jesus says in this final moment, this, this throne upon which I sit, I'm not going to lord it over you. I'm not going to sit upon it with vengeance and with hostility. No, when you enter into this throne room, I'm going to share it with you. Do we understand how remarkable that is? Does that hit you the way that it needs to hit you this morning? Listen, we live in a world where you're criticized if you touch the queen's elbow. What sort of king shares his throne? King of kings and the Lord of lords. You can come and sit on this throne with me. Imagine how that encouraged the readers of this letter. Right, we've talked about this before, that so many of the recipients of this letter to Revelation who would be reading all these words to these different churches would be receiving this letter in prison cells. Right, they'd be receiving this letter fearful of persecution, fearful of death that would be extended to them at the hands of existing emperors and existing kings. Right? They were absent of power, absent of protection. And here's Jesus saying there will be a day where you will fear that authority. You will fear the throne no longer because you will actually sit with me upon it. What a remarkable word. What an incredible king. He shares his throne with his people. As remarkable as it is, I don't know that it actually answers our question yet, though, does it? How do you approach such a king. And to really kind of venture into that, I want us to, to briefly leave Revelation. You can follow if you want. I don't have them on the screens, but you can hang a left and go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, I think, really gives us a very succinct answer to how we approach such a king and how we approach his throne. If you read through the first part of Hebrews 4, you'll see this interesting discussion about entering into God's rest. It's drawing upon the imagery of those who are wandering in the wilderness, longing to reach the promised land, reaching that rest. And it is used now in Hebrews chapter 4 somewhat figuratively to talk about the promise of everlasting life, to enter into this eternal rest and this eternal peace that we have with God. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging the readers, make every effort to enter into this rest. Now, right there with it, Kind of in the middle of chapter four, there's this, discussion, there's this discussion about the word of God and how it will once again pierce heart and soul and mind. It's, it's there that we find that correction. It's there that we find this reality that everything is laid bare before him. Nothing can be concealed as we pursue this entering into his rest. And then, picking up there, I believe it's in verse 14, we see a wonderful reminder of what happens next. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let me stop there. So much of those verses, verses 14 and 15, remind me of what we've seen thematically in the series of Revelation. Right? Every one of those letters to the churches starts with this affirmation of who Jesus is. Right? He's the one who is the first and the last, with eyes of fire and feet burnished as bronze. He's, he is the Alpha, the Omega, he is the ruler of all creation. You see all these different things that accentuate Jesus. And so you do here again, right? He is this great high priest. He is the son of God. And so let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Endure, hold on, remain loyal. Don't forsake your first love. It's that same refrain that we've seen throughout this series. Because he is this high priest, hold on to the faith that we profess because we know that Jesus can empathize with our weaknesses. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to try to conceal it. He knows your struggles. He knows your pain. What a comfort that is because he himself took on flesh and understands the very essence of what it means to be human, to experience those weaknesses. And so he can relate to those shortcomings, those failures, and yet he did not sin. It's just what makes him that perfect sacrifice. So we can come to him. And so with, with this in mind of who he is, the author of Hebrews says it so well. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Did you hear that, church? I love it. All right, this is a reminder that when we approach This throne, it is a throne not of judgment and hostility and vengeance. It is a throne of grace. And because it's a throne of grace, when we approach it, we are reminded not of who we aren't, but who we are in Christ. And who are we in Christ, church? We're made alive in Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. We are transformed in Christ, reconciled by Christ, forgiven in Christ. It is a throne of grace. And so what do we do? We don't approach it with timidity. We don't approach it with shame or with arrogance. We approach it with confidence. Confidence is one of my favorite words that we find in the New Testament. It's the Greek word parousia, and it's a confidence, it's a boldness that is not established because of your aptitudes or your abilities or your skill set. It is a confidence that is derived from freedom. I love that. Right? It's this notion of understanding your identity, understanding your freedom. And so when we encounter the grace of Jesus Christ, it sets us free, free from that shame, free from that guilt, so that we can approach him confidently because we know it is grace that awaits us. And so when we find that grace and we find that mercy, what takes place, church? It helps us in our time of need. That's why you run to him confidently, because it is there that you find help. I don't know if you're like me. If you are, I struggle many times with asking for help. Uh, I think my default is self-sufficiency, and so I just kind of vacillate back towards that. I think many people uh, struggle to ask for help for a variety of reasons. Maybe you are hesitant to ask people for help because you just don't want to inconvenience them. Or, or maybe you don't want to ask for help because you're, you're worried that they won't have time. You don't want to ask for help because it might be a sign of, of weakness in your own life. I don't know. How, how, 
often do you find yourself willing to ask for help? There's something really powerful about it because asking for help is really what it means to be human. It's those moments where we recognize, I can't do this on my own. And so we have to come before the Lord and we ask for help. And so what a word of encouragement that our God, this King of Kings, wants you to approach him confidently because his grace is there to help you. Now, what does that help look like? I would be the first to tell you that there are definitely times where that help will manifest itself in this life. Absolutely. Right? Cancer gets cured. Diseases are healed. Hardships and afflictions taken away. Temptations removed. Sure, absolutely. It can manifest itself in this life. But not always. Sometimes the help that we're looking for is far greater than just alleviation from our current circumstances. And yet a lot of times that's all we really fixate on. What we have to recognize is that what our deepest need really was was not help from a set of circumstances or trials and tribulations. God sent Jesus to help us with sin and death. And so the true help that our souls desperately needed was to be set free from that sin and to have the promise that death no longer had its hold on us. And so that's the great gift that Jesus affords, that he takes away all of our sin and gives us all of his righteousness, that we know that because of the cross and the empty tomb, that we too have the hope that death has been defeated. And so it may take this entire life, but make no mistake, church, your help will come in Jesus. And so I wonder how many of you have approached this throne room this morning looking for help. I think there's probably two mindsets that we, we often consider. Some of us are here today and we're not really looking for help because we haven't really given it much thought. Maybe you're here more out of habit, routine, ritual. Maybe you, you haven't asked for help because there are certain blind spots to the things that are plaguing you weaknesses, the shortcomings, and you just haven't seen them. Maybe you're not asking for help because you just keep trying to push those shortcomings away. You know that you're there, but you're doing everything you can to hide them from yourself, from God, and especially from others. Maybe you just don't think you need it. Some of us are here today desperate for help, and we don't even realize it. But I think probably the majority of us those of us that have lived long enough, <laughs> we're here today and we're fully aware of our need for help. And there could be a number of different things that have sparked that need within you. Could be the weight of this crazy pandemic and all the stresses that it's brought over the last year and a half, the worries that we've constantly been having to, to wrestle with. Have people that have lost jobs and are struggling financially. You've got folks whose marriages have been absolutely taken through the ringer. A lot of folks that are suffocating with loneliness, isolation because of this crazy set of circumstances. We've got families that are being tested with all sorts of challenges. I'm willing to bet there's a good majority of us that have come into this room today, and that's exactly what we need. We need help, and we're desperate for it question is, where will you run and where will you look for 
to find that help. The scriptures compel us time and time again, come to the throne of grace. It is there for you in that time of need. See, part of what we need to recognize when we think about this is that there are many different options, many different considerations, and when we go through these circumstances in life, where we're reminded of the brokenness of this world, and the shadows of darkness come closing in, and we begin to just wonder, can I really endure? Can I really press on? Is this really worth it? What we really need to discover once again is that this throne of grace sets us free from such worries and gives us the help that we need and reminds us that all things will be made new. And when we encounter that, here's the beautiful part of it. What grace does, when we actually enter into this throne of grace, you know what it does? It gives way to worship. (laughs) It makes space for joy, for gratitude, for praise, for song. And that's really the only place that I can really think to end this series is for us to imagine what it will be like on that day where we are fully in the presence of God standing before this throne of grace. It is good that we remind ourselves of that image and of that picture so that it can serve as the anchor for our souls. That It gives us the strength we need today and the hope for tomorrow. And so that's what I want to do. I want to do my best to just paint that picture, that it would be an anchor for all of us, no matter what sort of help we're looking for today, that we can once again be reminded of what truly will transpire at this throne room of grace. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read just an excerpt from Revelation chapter 5. This is where the author takes us after those letters to the churches. It gives us an opportunity to see what really takes place before the throne of God. And as I read these words from Revelation 5, I just want them to minister to you. So if you want to close your eyes and picture it, you can picture it. If you want to follow along and follow it along, we don't have it up on the screens, but this is the image. This is the hope. This is the promise that is awaiting those who can endure and those who can overcome. And it is a reminder of what this throne room of grace will really behold for each and every one of us. So let me encourage us with these words. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scrolls or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, 
They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. When you go through life and you encounter the inevitable brokenness of this world and you feel the darkness of those shadows closing in, it is good to remind ourselves of this throne room of grace. This throne room of grace that tells us not who we aren't, but who we are. Purchased from every tongue, tribe, and nation to be a kingdom of priests and to reign with God and to forever declare he is worthy. May that strengthen us today and give us hope for tomorrow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can approach your throne with confidence. So Father, as a people, we come before you and we declare we need you. We need help. And Father, we will not be too timid to ask for that help to, in fact, reveal itself in this current life. God, I pray that you would help provide healing for those who need healing. Father, that you would alleviate certain pains and struggles and challenges, God, but that ultimately we would have the maturity and the wisdom to know that the true help we really need is a victory over sin and death. And for that, Father, we give praise for the cross. We look upon this throne of grace and we see this Jesus who was slain and by his blood, Father, purchased us, redeemed us, restored us, and forgave us. For that, Father, we are forever grateful. And so may our picture of grace this morning, this picture of this throne room, once again erupt in joyful praise so that when we encounter these hard moments, Father, and we question, can we continue? Can we persevere? Can we give ourselves to you, we will once again remind one another that yes, we will and we can because you are worthy of all. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And now we surrender our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.